what I what I started realizing was a lot of people would say, oh, the agency doesn't understand my business. And what I realized they meant was not necessarily that they don't understand my niche. They don't understand business. They don't understand profit. They don't understand what my actual goals are. From an algorithmic understanding, one of the things that I see that is a um, big issue uh, is there's still a really big lack of excluding existing customers from what people would call prospecting campaigns. Um, and so you'll, you'll see people maybe excluding based on pixel purchases or something like that. I'm amazed at the amount of people that aren't excluding email addresses or they do, but it hasn't up, they haven't updated the email address list in you know five months or something. It's, and, and there's a really good article that we have on our blog about this too, which the ROAS death spiral. And uh, if, if you are going to say run an ad, let's say the non-brand search, Run that in five states and don't run it in any other 45 states or something, right? And it's good to import. You still have to pick the right states, but let's just make it simple for now. At the end of a test period, you should be able to see that there's a difference in the amount of actual revenue in Shopify from those five states. So on today's episode, we'll be talking about performance marketing, particularly as it pertains to M&A exits. It's a great episode you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss this one. So do stay tuned. This is the 2X e-commerce podcast hosted by Kunle Campbell. On today's episode of the 2X e-commerce podcast, I get to sit down with William Harris, a successful Ohio-based e-commerce performance marketer and founder of the e-commerce growth agency Element. William is someone I've known since 2018. And over the years, I've seen him grow and blossom to the point where he is today. He's helped 13 companies get acquired, including one that sold to GoDaddy and another that fetched over $800 million in, 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 in exit. His agency, Element, has was recently featured as an INC 5000 winner, as well as an INC Best Workplaces winner. William has authored over 200 articles about e-commerce, advertising and leadership on entrepreneur.com, Fast Company, Shopify, TNW, social media today, and many other places. In this episode, we go deep into William's childhood that was filled with hard work and challenges, how he got into the world of commerce and digital marketing, and then the juicy e-commerce growth tactics, including geographic holdups, brand name search, account simplicity in Facebook advertising campaigns, mistakes and red flags on badly set up campaigns, bottom of funnel advertising, and top of funnel advertising, automation, and MNA. The most important takeaway you will learn from this conversation, however, is why ROAS, that is return on advertising spent, is the wrong metric to focus on. You'll learn exactly what your North Star metrics, success metric for paid marketing campaigns should be. And if you're prepping for an MNA exit, we have you covered because William also covers how to optimize your ad campaigns and your entire business for acquisitions. So without further ado, let's get started. Let's take a short pause to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. Let's talk about the importance of retention in e-commerce growth and the role that marketing automation plays in achieving it. When it comes to marketing automation, the gold standard platform for e-commerce is Klaviyo. I've been using Klaviyo since 2017 
and I've watched it evolve from an email-only platform to a unified customer platform with integrated email and SMS capabilities. Not only have I watched it evolve, but I've been able to use Klaviyo to roll out highly targeted messaging flows to VIPs and high-risk customers who are about to churn, and even implement on-site behavior-triggered message flows, all with high deliverability rates. I've never once had to worry about not being able to use Klaviyo for even my wildest automation and optimization dreams because Klaviyo has deep integration with my tech stack with over 300 integrations. It's no wonder why over 100,000 brands trust Klaviyo, including big names like Glossier, Iconic London, Wilkinson Sword, Italis, Grind, and Blender's Eyewear. And at Octelian, where we acquire digital native brands in both the health and beauty and the food and beverage industries. We use Clavio in our portfolio brands like Lean Caffeine. With Clavio, you will have a single platform to personalize at scale and connect with your customers to grow more profitably and sustainably on your own terms without having to rely on expensive strategies like paid advertising. So don't wait Try Clavio today and take control of your e-commerce growth. Get a free trial at clavio.com slash 2x. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash 2x. Hey, William, welcome to the 2x e-commerce podcast. Thanks, Kunli. It's good to be here. No, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's been a few months since we, we last caught up. I think we caught up back in October or November. I can't quite remember now. Yeah. Um, it's it's great. It's great. We're in January. People listening to this will be listening to it in, in February of 2023. And yeah, there's a lot that has happened over the years. We're going to jump into yes. it. But I want to know your backstory, William, um, who you are. Um, Let's actually get into your, your, your childhood, you know, where'd sure. you grow up? What kind of childhood did you, did you have and how did that sort of connect to what you do today? I love it. Um, so I grew up in Canton, Ohio, um, or as we would say, when I grew up there, Canton, Ohio, right? We didn't pronounce the T as much, but, uh, yeah, right. Which I've, I've lost a little bit of that now cause I'm in Minnesota now. So it's like, I pronounce my T's a little different. My O's a little different, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, it was a great childhood. There's a lot that I love about it, but I would say partly that's because I'm an eternal optimist, as my friends would say, and, and I always see the positive. Um, but I did, I grew up in a single family home. I grew up uh, with uh, just my mom there. Um, have a great relationship with my dad now um, and, and, you know, loved him very much as a kid, but didn't see him as much as I would have liked to uh, back then. Um, and so, that you know, there's, there's difficulties that I'd say could come from, from that, uh, that people would say. Um, and it was a poor neighborhood. Uh, it was not, uh, it was not a wealthy area. Uh, I want to say that, uh, our neighbor's house at the time, you know, was, was, uh, $20,000 here. Maybe even if you still looked, it's maybe, maybe worth that right now. And it's, uh, you know, it's a different, different area. Um, I can remember, um, I can remember, uh, you know, and these are things that I'd, I'd say, but, uh, I don't think I've ever said on a podcast before. I remember being held at gunpoint, uh, it before and, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily an area that you would think like, oh, this is where you need to be to become successful one day or something like that. Um, but I think the thing that I love about my childhood though, is that, um, 
I felt like I was very protected by God. Um, I think that he guided me through a lot of absolutely crazy things. Uh, one of my one of my best friends turned himself in uh, for a drive-by shooting that he was involved in, but he, he spent the night at our house the night before he did. And I mean, you know, just like things that it's like I could have been wrapped up in some very, very awful things. Mm. And for some reason, I wasn't. Um, mm. and, and so I'd say that there was just like this providence and guidance there. Um, but the other thing is just, uh, I, I did have a mom that loved me very, very much and a mom that wanted good for us. And so she made sure that, you know, we worked hard. She taught us how to work hard. So we did chores every Saturday. We had a chore list, um, and we had to go through that list and we had to do a good job. And if you didn't do a good job, you know, my mom was an Italian mom. Uh, you knew that you didn't do a good job. And, uh, so we had to go through our chore list every Saturday. And I think that that's important. It taught me how to work hard from an early age. And I got a paper route then when I turned 11. And uh, thought it was pretty big stuff because I had uh, a checkbook then uh, when I was 11 years old because uh, you'd, you'd collect the money. You, well, here's the thing. So I don't know if they do this anymore. Um, you actually had to go around and collect money from all the people on your paper route back then. So you had to like go and knock on their door and say, hey, you owe me money like for the papers that I've been delivering. And you'd collect that and then you'd take that and you'd take that to the to the uh, paper company, which was uh, the repository there in Canton. Um and so you'd have to do that and you'd have to, you know, there's a lot of like financial stuff at 11 and, and I had a lot of help from my mom with that, but you know, we did that and then started mowing lawns. And so it turned into, it's like, I would say there was like an entrepreneurship there at an early age that said like, Hey, this isn't just going to get handed to you. You got to figure out how you're going to earn your, your food or your keep or your whatever. Right. And, um, so I think there was like a desire in me from, uh, from an early age to say like, how can I be creative about this? How can I figure out how to, uh, get myself into a different situation. Mm. That's just really, 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 really deep. Can't, can't deny. And what was education? So did you, did you go to college eventually? How, how did you, how long were you in, in, in Ohio for? And, um, and, and, you know, when did you sort of make the move out? Sure. Man, this is a long story, and it's like there's a lot of turns. So I'm going to try and figure out how I we'll tell just the summarize shorter version. We'll just, yeah. Um, the uh, you know, I, I initially went to a college uh, called Sandy Valley. Um, my mom was a band director there, and so we went there up and through uh, through eighth grade, um, and then I switched in freshman year over to a, a smaller private school, actually called Heritage Christian. Um, and my mom worked hard for that. And, and I had an uncle then who was willing to help out a little bit for us to kind of be in a, in a little bit of a better school, but it was still in, it was still in a rough neighborhood. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't out in, you know, nice area or anything. Um, and, uh, so, you know, moving forward from that though, um, to get into college, I, I didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do, uh, but I wanted to be creative and inventor of some sorts. I wanted to do something exciting. Um, and at the time, I was looking at, I, I had a band uh, that I was in, um, play acoustic guitar and lead vocals. Uh, and I wanted to go in and, and just kind of be a, like a, a rock star, basically. And my mom said, well, that's not a career path. So I need you to figure out something else. Um, and I had, I had looked at electrical engineering um, and shadowed somebody. And I was like, I, I love electronics. I would take RC cars apart, you know, the day I got them as a kid. Even I can remember sitting in the back of the bus as like a kindergartner. And I would have like the motor taken apart. And I'm using the motor for different things in the back of the bus and stuff. But uh, I remember shadowing somebody thinking, this is boring. I can't do this for a job. Like I love electrical engineering and electronics, but I, I can't 
whatever I shadowed, it wasn't going to work for me. Um, and so she said, well, you're really compassionate. You care a lot about people, and, which is very true. And she said, have you ever thought about nursing? You could work three days a week, and then you'd still have four days a week that you could do uh, your band. And I thought, okay, that's an interesting idea. Sure, I'll do that. Um, and wanting to get over with, I, I joined a, uh, a, a small school called Altman College of Nursing. Um, and so did it in two years. And so it was a, a quick program. I think we had 23 credits per semester and, and you know, flew through that. I was working while, while going to school. And so it was just, you know, a blur. I don't really remember much of anything there. Uh, although I do remember that's why I started drinking coffee. Never drank coffee until I started college. <laughs> um, and so then, you know, fast forward from there, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, now how do you go from nursing eventually into advertising for e-commerce? And, and the short story there was um, my, my wife uh, is uh, from Minnesota. I'm from Ohio. Um, okay. And so uh, we, we met in uh, Kentucky, actually, on a mission strip. Uh, and then when, when I'm looking at, okay, well, where do we want to be? Where do we want to go? We were California bound um, and we had, a, we had our first kid and, and uh um, 2008 happens and, um, 2008, right. Financial crisis. And I was told that I'd never have to worry about a job as a male nurse. It's like, Oh, you'll never have to worry about a job. Well, I graduated in 2005, three years later, there's this financial crisis and, and I'm sitting there with, you know, 20 hours of work, uh, 20 hours a week worth of work because, uh, you know, they were, I was the low man on the totem pole at the, at the oh. hospital there. And so, you know, I've got a, a family now and I got to figure out what I'm going to do here. And, um, so I decide that I'm going to go back to school for marketing. And, uh, I said, why, well, no matter what, cause no matter what I do, I was going to have to market myself. And so in the mind, mind, I didn't think that I was going to go into a job for marketing. Didn't even know what jobs were available in marketing. I just knew that I have to market myself for whatever I'm going to do. Right. So mm -hmm. to get a new job, I need to learn how to market myself. I don't want to diverse. I wanted to diversify my education and have a backup of something else too. Um, versus just go get, you know, maybe my master's in nursing. It's like, well, what's the point in that? I want to get something different. Um, and so, uh, and it was good. Um, and I started doing, there's this, uh, and I remember the, the real transition point where I realized, okay, there, I'm actually maybe gifted at this. Um, there was a, uh, there was like a, a simulation. It was called CAPSIM. And you'd compete against a bunch of other uh, colleges. And, you know, I think Yale was in this college, this, this uh, simulation and everything. And, and you ran a company for eight weeks, and each week was a different year of this company's uh, existence. And you you ran the finance and, and the inventory production and, and everything. And um, I can remember at the end of this eight week period, I had put every other business uh, out of out of business. I, I bankrupted them all. There are only three businesses left in the competition, and I took eighty one percent market share. Um, and I remember the teachers is saying, "You've got a gift for this, William." It's like, mm. yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, and so I was like, okay, so that's interesting, but I didn't do anything with it yet. Um, but so we're looking at, okay, where do we want to be? We're California bound. My wife's dad dies of pancreatic cancer, just, you know, a sudden thing. And so we're like, okay, well, we're moving to Minnesota then for the time being to help my, my mother-in-law out. Um, and, uh, while we were there, I realized this is where you raise a family. It's a wonderful place to be, but in order to get there, the easiest thing was travel nursing. So great. I'll just do travel nursing. Well, what's interesting about travel nursing is. Um, you, you're, you're, you're kind of, you know, capitalizing on the idea that they always have needs in different parts of the hospital and that they can't staff the way that they would like to staff internally. Right. So you're, you're, you're kind of mm -hmm. like a contractor if you would for nursing. Um, and so I come in there and I get, I start off an open heart and then I get trained in every unit of the hospital because mm -hmm. I get bored easily and, uh, there's a need everywhere. 
uh, every night I could call in and find out where they needed me. And so I, I was doing very well there. Um, and I decided, well, okay, I'm still just trading time for money. What if I develop a system to help them solve their scheduling issues? I start working on something and I find there's actually a program that does a lot of what I want to be done called When I Work. Um, and so I talked to the owner, Chad Halverson. Um, they've since been acquired now, which is a really cool story. Um, mm-hmm. And I say, I want to use your API and I want to build out from that um, the rest of what I need for the hospital. He says, sounds mm-hmm. good. And then he calls me up about maybe a week later and says, actually, we just got some VC money and I want you to come run our marketing team. Okay, <laughs> let's okay. do it. And so, so that's when I started marketing. And, that's, and it's like, okay, well, I've tested this out now in a simulation. Let's see if I'm any good at this in real life. Um, in the first seven months, we grow another 270%. So um, I'm not allowed to say what the numbers were, but it was really good. We, we did very well. Um, and I start writing about what I'm doing on Entrepreneur and Fast Company. Um, and then I get picked up by an e-commerce company that says, we want you to do that for us. And so, so okay, great. And, and uh, they had, I think, like 3,000 SKUs at the time. And, and I grow them to 70,000 SKUs and we're just dominating the market. Um, and I start writing about this more on, on, on these different big publications. And people said, well, I've got a business. Can you help me grow my business? And I was like, well, sure. Go back to the core of who I was. I like to help people. That's why I went into mm-hmm. nursing, right? I like helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like, well, and I've got a gift to be able to help people. And so, yeah, I want to use that gift. And so I said, sure. And I found uh, contractors that I knew that were good at doing certain things. And it was me and some contractors. And we were just out there, just like this rogue team, um, just out there crushing stuff for people. And, uh, and it was fun. And then it transitioned eventually to something that I was like, oh, wait a minute, maybe I should take this seriously. This isn't just like a, a, a thing. And, and that's maybe another story for another day, but uh, eventually mm-hmm. take it seriously and, and grow it to what it is then today. And what is it today? Sure. So, uh, you know, when I started taking it seriously, uh, would have been maybe around 2018. Um, mm-hmm. My business mentor at the time was Dave Mortensen. Um, he started uh, Anytime Fitness Franchise. I don't know if you guys have them out there where you are. Uh, but they're the biggest gym franchise in the world, I believe. And, uh, and so uh, he said, and I love solving problems. That's my, the other part of me is I, I memorized pi out 59 digits on my way to work. Oh, I just like okay. math. I like science. I like thinking. And, and I want to solve very complex problems. And I remember him saying, well, what if this is the problem you're supposed to solve? Why don't you actually just solve the problem of this agency? Because, uh, you know, as he put it is a lot of people don't like agencies because agencies don't do a very good job for them. And a lot of people who do work at agencies feel like agencies aren't really that fun to work at, maybe. And so he's like, why don't, why don't you solve this problem? Oh, that's an interesting problem. Okay, sure. So now I'm all into this problem. Um, and I'm like, okay, great. And I, I started digging into it. And it would have been 2020 that we uh, brought on our first employee, uh, March the 7th. Pandemic. Oh. Right at the beginning of the pandemic. March Stops 7th. The pandemic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, actually, I think, I think he came on like March 14th or something like that. March 7th was actually mm-hmm. my last haircut. I went two years without a haircut during that just for fun, right? Why not? Everybody else did. Um, <laughs> and so, so, yeah, so we brought on our first employee then, um, and it was actually uh, my partner then. And uh, now we're at 15 employees. So over just the course of, you know, a little over two years, we're at 15 W-2s. We still got a, a handful of really awesome contractors that I would like to mm-hmm. make an employee at some point in time, but they like the contract mm-hmm. world, and, and that's fine. And uh, They're basically still just our full-time contractors now almost, if you would. Let's take a short pause to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. If you're looking to take your e-commerce growth to the next level, 
I highly recommend checking out Recharge for your recurring payments and subscription management needs. With Recharge, you'll be able to streamline your recurring payments, create predictability, and even further automate your business. So don't wait. Get started with the subscription platform trusted by over 50 million subscribers across the world. Try Recharge today and see how it can help you retain your customers and grow your business. So head over to rechargepayments.com forward slash 2x. That is rechargepayments.com forward slash 2x. So, so your, your your agency name is called Element um, with, mm-hmm. so it's E-L-U-M-Y-N-T. Quite an interesting name, unusual. How did you come up with it? Um, again, I'm an absolute nerd. If you've ever seen the Big Bang Theory, on more than one occasion, I've been referred to as Sheldon Cooper by independent people <laughs> who don't know each other. <laughs> um, and so I, I absolutely love just science. Um, and so it was meant to be based on the periodic table of elements. Um, okay. But when I registered the domain, elements. the trend at the time was to have misspelling of words. And so a lot of people don't know uh, that Google is actually a misspelling of the number Google, G-O-O-G-O-L. And I actually wrote a really right. interesting paper on that. Here's a tangent. Um, on how <laughs> long will it take Google to live up to its namesake by actually indexing a Google web pages, which is 10 to the 100th power. Um, and I think it was like 684 years at the time when I did the math. And if you've ever followed Number File on, uh, on YouTube, which is a really great one, yeah. James Grime, uh, one of the guys there actually commented on it, made my day, the fact that he actually like read my article about this math article I wrote, right? Um, I, I lost track of where we were going with this. Oh, so the spelling. So, uh, you know, it was a misspelling of the word uh, Google, right? So mine was a misspelling of the word element. Six-letter domain, .com, hard to come by at the time. And I was like, oh, this is cool. So you guys are quite accomplished. So you're an e-commerce growth agency. Your, your focus is, is, is on growth. You're focused yeah. on, on profit instead of ROAS. We're going to jump right into it. And you've helped 13 yep. companies get acquired, including one that sold to GoDaddy for $800 million. That's shy of a billion. Elements was recently featured as an INC 5000 winner, as well as an INC best workplace winner. Now, these are really big accolades and, and these really connect to core values. And before Element, or while you while you started Element, I remember you you're still an author for Forbes. If I Entrepreneur dot com, mm-hmm. Fast Company. You've written in Shopify, TNW, Social Media Today, and many other places. So let's get into your. Did you start Element with a focus on e commerce, or did you figure out okay, e commerce is 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 where it should be based on the fact that um, these are experience with so many industries. And, and so we just prefer e-commerce. What, what, why, why commerce? It wasn't e-commerce at first, uh, but I had e-commerce background. So I, I had SaaS background, which was when I work and then e-commerce background. And so um, naturally the first couple of clients that I had were SaaS and e-commerce clients. And, and interestingly enough, the uh, first SaaS company that I had, uh, I th- believe the very first client was uh, Cellbrite, um, and they were out of Idea Lab out in Pennsylvania, uh, in, in uh, Pasadena, and um, they're actually the ones that sold to GoDaddy. But it wasn't for eight hundred million. Two different, two different companies. So one that sold to GoDaddy, one that sold for eight hundred million. But um, 
so when when I brought them on, they were a SaaS company in the e-commerce space. And so that really just uh, ignited mm. an appetite for e-commerce as well. Yeah. Um, and, and in so doing that, uh, started to realize that the way that a lot of people were approaching e-commerce growth was, I don't know how to say it, very basic and rudimentary. Um, and there was a lot of things that they weren't taking into account that we were doing maybe in SaaS. And so I, I saw very few people in e-commerce that were looking at LTV or CAC or things like that at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, at the time that I really started getting into it, Shopify didn't even have a 10 by 10 booth at uh, IRCE in Chicago, which at the time was like, that was kind of like the place mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, like this was like still early in, in, in e-commerce and started looking and I don't remember what the percentage was, uh, but the percentage that e-commerce made up of total retail sales was like 10%. Um, and I'm sure you remember that where, where, you know, even right now, e-commerce only takes up about 15% of total retail sales in the U S it's very small. And so at the time looking at this saying, there's a lot of opportunity here. This is a field where I feel like a lot of people aren't understanding how to grow e-commerce in a more thoughtful way. Um, and it's a field that is just ripe for growth naturally. And so that's kind of when we started really migrating more and more towards that. Interesting. Super, super interesting. <clears throat> and let's let's speak to your focus on EBITDA or profit, because not many agencies tend to want to speak about finance, you know, um, over probably onboarding sessions, there'll be a brief 30 second conversation on what's your revenue like. And, and they, it just, they just breeze off from there. And unit economics is really mm-hmm. important. So, so it seems like you're driven by the unit, unit economics of the business. And then you're seeing, okay, how can advertising actually work? So, so what, what is the thesis there on, on a, on a profit driven approach to performance marketing and what platforms do you focus on? Obviously Facebook is the, is, 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 is the core or, 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 or the love child there, but, um, let, let's, let, let's, let's, um, let's again, sorry, go for it, please. So what I, what I started realizing was a lot of people would say, oh, the agency doesn't understand my business. And what I realized they meant was not necessarily that they don't understand my niche. They don't understand business. They don't understand profit. They don't understand what my actual goals are. And so um, you know, how many times have you run into maybe an agency that grows the revenue, pats themselves on the back, but then the finance team comes over and says, but we were less profitable. Like this isn't a good thing because they ran this sale or this discount or whatever this was. And so it wasn't beneficial to the business. Yeah. Um, and, and so in realizing that, I think the reason why a lot of agencies don't like doing it is because it's hard. It's a lot harder. It takes a lot more work to measure and analyze and understand if what you're doing is actually beneficial to the bottom line of a business than it is to the top of line. Um, and so I don't think it's that they don't want to, I think it's just hard and it scares people away a little bit. Um, but as far as how we go, yeah, go ahead. The PNL, the, the profits and loss yep. statement, you know, with, 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 with what agencies render they're, they're a line item on there. They're, they're in the advertising slot on there. Do you, do you, do you want to get a full view of their P&L to, to understand how advertising is, is, is affecting or impacting all other lines, particularly the, the, the revenue, you know, the, the revenue lines? We, we do. And there's, there's two big primary reasons for this. Um, 
One would be uh, a big way that we help increase the EBITDA of these companies would be um, maximizing ads towards products that are more profitable. So when you talk about the unit economics, we can say product A might have a revenue of $500, but it might only have, you know, a a profit of $10 or something. That's just a ridiculous number just to make sure it's easy in people's heads. Um, whereas maybe product B has only a revenue of $100, but it has you know, a profit of $50. Well, if you're just focused on revenue and ROAS, you're going to sell a lot more maybe of product A at $500 and it's going to look better for your return on ad spend. But when mm-hmm. you actually get down to the profitability of it, it's not as good. And so we actually make sure, how do we feed that information of the profit per product back into Google? So that way we can optimize around what is profitable to that business. And not just us, we're actually still working with the algorithm. And so the algorithms are massively powerful. Um, like ChatGPT, if you feed it garbage, it's going to give you garbage. But but if you ask it good questions and the right questions, refine it, it does well. Google's algorithm, Facebook's algorithm, very powerful if you send it the data that you actually want, which is more profit. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons. Um, and then the other part of this would be um, aggregate profit. And so... You know, without understanding the PL and how we fit into what we're doing for this, um, it's easy for businesses to get shy about spending more money um, because they might think that it's at a higher cost, especially if they're only understanding, let's say, ROAS or even MER. Um, and, a, and an example I give of this is uh, one of the clients we brought on their first month with us, um, they got a bill, and, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's say for ease of use, it was maybe they were used to spending $10,000 with their agency. And the agency fee we sent them was maybe $20,000. And they're like, that's a lot more money. Like, you know, this isn't good. And that's because this is the marketing team speaking. This is not the finance team of that company. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I said, I understand that. But remember, we talked about this. And so we said, we were able to spend $200,000 more in advertising. And as a result, you made this much revenue. And when we take away your cost of goods sold and your shipping cost and your overhead and the returns cost and the ad spend, and the agency fee, you're left with $800,000 more profit that month. Mm. So month over month profit change $800,000. Is it okay that we charge $10,000 more to deliver $800,000 more profit? And he said, well, yeah, when you put it that way, and I said, that's exactly the way I want to put it because that's what actually matters to your business. So I think that without that knowledge, we can't do that for businesses. We need to know where those points are in order for us to be most effective at what their real goal is. So, so, so do you, is, is it an incentive driven model you, you're on? So when, you know, the, there's a net impact and profit, you get the upside and, you know, everybody, you know, you know, is sort of happy with the outcome monetarily. We have played around with that. Um, ideally everybody's happy. The problem with doing it that way is that it makes, let's just even say invoicing absolutely monstrous because, mm-hmm. you know, you, that company might not close their books for another month. And then we can maybe go back and see if there's any change in EBITDA month over month to do that. It, it just, it's, it's uh, unnecessarily complex for that. If we say, well, there's two main factors. If we say, all right, we've got this MER that we're going to target at this ad spend, assuming that none of your other things are going to change significantly, your COGS as a percentage, like we can, we can calculate what those should be at all of those different levels. Assuming that all of that is, is where it needs to be. This is what your EBITDA should look like. And and there's agreement upon that, right? So their Mm -hmm. team, the finance team, marketing team says, yeah, this looks good. We have the inventory to support that kind of growth. We have, you know, that those numbers that, that lines up with what we're anticipating and expecting if we were to spend that much, um, then we can at least align and say, here's what that EBITDA should be. 
Um, so now we can still just operate an invoice around ad spend, which is an absolute fact. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so it, it keeps it as, a, as a, an immediate fact that is much more trackable. Okay. But okay. it should, Makes it should result in that. There's, there's no reason why it wouldn't result Makes in that unless they, for some reason, hired 10 more people that month. Okay. So it makes a lot of sense. So it's really focused on, on Mer. Now so there's yep. some listeners of this podcast that are not so technical. So I guess sure. we should start out with some definitions. Could you define ROAS, Mer, EBITDA, and maybe LTV? So so that um you know every we we clear sure you know what we're about to talk because we're we're about to get a bit more technical moving forward so so let's start out with ROAS ROAS return on ad spend the way that it's typically calculated for most people is in platform the amount of revenue that the platform takes credit for divided by the ad spend for so if mm-hmm. you're looking at Facebook if Facebook says hey you you brought in $100,000 you spent $10,000 you have an ROAS, a ROAS of, uh, you know, 10x. Um, I, I like to differentiate that. I don't like calling it ROAS because it's not the return on ad spend. It's the, I call it the reported return on ad spend. It's just what Facebook was like, we'll take credit for it. The reported mm-hmm. return on ad spend. Uh, MER then, media efficiency because, rate. Because they're, they're, they're overlaps, right, with, with ROAS. If you, you know, Google might say it's a 10 ROAS, Facebook ROAS. And when you start to add the numbers, you're like, I didn't make this much revenue, right? Exactly. It's it's in both ways. Maybe Facebook takes too much credit or it takes too little credit, but either way, it's mm-hmm. not the actual return that that ad spend drove. It is just mm-hmm. the return that that ad spend is taking credit for within that platform. Right. It's not okay. your return on ad spend. Okay. Um, MER then is media efficiency rate, which is the exact same equation, except that it's your total revenue, basically what you see in Shopify, divided by your ads, total ad spend across all channels. And so I like to keep it that simple. Some people like to put a bunch of other stuff in it. We have other metrics for what those other things are. When you include the agency, we call that the AMER, right? So it's the agency MER. But but I like to keep it as it is the most simple revenue divided by ad spend. Um, So so from your perspective, right? um, Let's say Element is, um, let's say you're focusing exclusively on on facebook advertising for a client and they have an adwords agency and some other agency for another platform maybe tiktok how do you still how do, how do you calculate the would you still calculate the mer in in that instance or do you tend to work with multiple platforms so we prefer to work with multiple platforms and most of our clients uh 80 90 of them we're, we're on both sides of that equation for that very reason that you know uh, if you're running um, if you're running Facebook and somebody else is running Google ads, well, what if they decide to shut off the non-brand search because it has a one X row as, but now all of a sudden what was working really well on Facebook, cause you were retargeting those people, uh, isn't there anymore. Cause they just shut up a whole bunch of qualified traffic, right? So uh, right. having both sides of that coin makes a lot of sense, but there are a number of clients that we only uh, work on one side. Um, and for them, it's still important to calculate the MER, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One it's still the most baseline way of understanding if the net aggregate of everything that they're doing is resulting in more revenue. And so if we scale up Facebook um, and the MER goes down significantly, we still can look at that and say, whatever we did, it didn't drive what we hoped it would drive, even if Facebook took more credit for something. And so it's still an important metric to track, even if we're only one-sided. Um, and what we found is it just requires a better communication between those teams. And so when we are disparate teams and we're working with another team that's running their Google or vice versa. Um, 
we have to kind of align and say, hey, we plan on running this test. We're going to scale over the next couple of weeks. We need you to hold steady so we can see if what we're doing is incrementally improving yeah. things before you do that. Yeah, yeah. So not not too many variables or too many cooks in 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 the in the kitchen, really. Essentially, okay. Um, yep. A bit there. Yeah. So uh, this is basically your earnings before interest, tax deductions, and amortization. It's uh, it's a uh, finance term, but basically just what this means is your bottom line, your profit. So when you take your revenue and you subtract your re- your your cost of goods sold, you subtract your shipping, you subtract your agency fee, your ad spend, you subtract your overhead, you subtract everything else, what are you left with, your profit? That's essentially what we're talking about here before you start getting okay. into all the rest of the tax calculations and everything else. And then you, you plug it into, you, you, so, so on your reporting, you have the EBITDA whenever it's available and then you plug it, you, you plug it into to your, to the MER and, and you start to see the dynamics, how they, they, there's that relationship, right? Yeah, because one example of this would be Let's say that you let's say that your company uh, you're you're at like a 8x return on ad spend or MER, um, and you tell the agency that you know what we really need to be at a 10x, and so they might pull back on ad spend in order to get to that 10x, and they might do just fine and they get to a 10x, but the problem is they pull back maybe so much in ad spend that your overall profit is actually lower. And so, yeah, you're more profitable per sale, but your overall profit is not where you need to be because you still have overhead that's not accounted for and things like that. And so uh, it it still gives you that ability to say, it's like, you're not just looking for the highest MER possible. You're looking for the right mix of that MER aligned with the right mix of ad spend. And that should give you the EBITDA that you're going after. That makes a lot of sense. And then with the EBITDA, I guess, um, when you're working with with companies looking to be acquired, that, that is like a North Star metric. It is. This is essentially the metric that they're looking for. You know, most acquisitions are, are essentially just going to be a, a factor of um, a multiple of whatever that EBITDA is. Now, there's a lot of things that can, you know, influence what that multiple is, um, but it's it almost always just going to come down to a multiple of EBITDA. Okay. And then finally, LTV, lifetime value, how, how does it play in with, um, with your reporting what tools you use to to get the the best LTV? Shopify by default um, is not great at it, um, and um, if you use like e- e- email platforms such as you know Klaviyo or, or any ESP, they give you a more skewed perspective. So, so how do you factor in LTV and how do you calculate LTV for the sake of um, you know measuring performance? Sure. We actually use Power BI, so we, we import all of that data ourselves and we run our own calculations. We found that that's the way that we can be the most thoughtful about how those are being calculated. Um, when we talk about LTV, lifetime value, um, we're talking about like that aggregated lifetime value. I know some people will call it like a CLV, a customer lifetime value or something like that, but we're really talking about just that, that aggregated uh, amount there. Uh, and, and how this plays in would be, in good markets, I would say this is not as good of a, a strategy during a bear market, but during bull markets, uh, you can be a little bit more aggressive about your acquisition. Uh, and so if you know that on average, your 90-day LTV, so the amount of money you're going to get from a customer on average in 90 days uh, is $200, you might be willing, and in, in let's just say that the profit on that is $100, you might be willing to spend $100 to acquire that customer because you know that you know after 90 days, you've broken even and everything from there on out is going to be straight profit from that customer. Whereas maybe before, if you're trying to break even on purchase one, you were trying to acquire a customer for $25. Now, if you and I are going up against each other in the ads uh, you know, world, 
uh, and I'm willing to spend $100 to acquire that customer, and you're only willing to pay $25 for that customer, who's going to win more of those ad auctions? It's going to be me. And so I think that it's important to understand that it's like you're competing with people who are willing to be aggressive. They are not necessarily saying they need to be profitable on that first purchase. Um, mm-hmm. And so that can give you a little bit of an edge towards saying you still need to be efficient with what your ad spend is, but you can be more aggressive now too, if necessary. Right. That metric is really important to, to, to understand how, you know, how you, how far you'll go um, and with competition, right? Okay. That, that makes all, that makes a, 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 a lot of sense. Now, and we're in 2023. Looks like we're in a recession or about to get to a recession. The economy, consumer demand basically is not the same as it was at the start of last year. How are you making adjustments or how are clients adjusting to, to this change in consumer behavior? Um, and what is the opportunity in all that's happening? Yeah, the biggest part is uh, nimbleness, being flexible. And, you know, I think that hopefully a lot of people have learned that now over the last couple of years, because we've had some of the most interesting couple of years here uh, in general, where just massive changes uh, in the space. Um, and so we really like using Google Trends a lot and looking at macro trends from their overall category. So, if, uh, you know, if they're selling, let's say, coffee, then it's like, well, what is the trend of people searching for coffee just in general and the seasonality or whatever that might be? And, and let's just say that, you know, if the, if the trend for people that are looking for what you sell at a macro level um, is down 40% year over year, you're not likely to double your uh your revenue this year without also having to incur let's say a penalty of of a higher customer acquisition cost you, you, mm. you're, you're going up against a smaller you know market demand right now so you yeah. can still do it but it's going to cost you a little bit so a lot of this comes down to just working with clients to understand those trends um and making sure that they don't over order inventory um and, and looking at how can we test into these things so Let's say that we see that it's down 40% year over year, but you're you're up 5%, 10%, 20% year over year. And let's say you're up 20%, but you're only it's only costing you 5% more year over year to do that 20% growth. Okay, well, that's a that's a, a worthwhile thing. Let's continue to go towards that. And let's just aim for 20% growth year over year or something like that. But it just comes down to a lot more thoughtful understanding of if we see that this is taking off, let's go ahead and start being more uh, incremental towards uh, adding more there. Um, if we see that things are not hitting where it needs to be, you know, let's go back to the drawing board, figure out what we need to do to improve efficiency, but let's be aware of, you know, what is an appropriate growth goal for 2023. Yeah. And, and, um, it circles back to your focus on a beta because a right. business with, with negative a beta will not survive essentially. And, and just right. planning and ensuring and looking at, at your beta over this period is 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 ever so critical so you know where to cut um so would you suggest or are you rather rather than opinion what is the data coming to 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 you saying from a perspective of advertising spend i know it's january january typically is you know when you know advertisers tend to to spend less unless if it's a seasonal, you know, January item, health and fitness, hint, hint. But um, <laughs> from BFCM, from Q4 last year, did 
your your cohorts of clients and you know other accounts you have access to did they spend less and and get get more what what was the the return the general mer return and um what was the appetite for 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 digital advertising um last q4 and what do you think q1 and q2 will bring this 2023 yeah um i would say overall general Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and, and let's just say holidays turned out better than what people were anticipating going into it last year because Q3 really beat some people up pretty good a little bit. Uh, and then Q4, it was like, you know, it, this could be, you know, dangerous territory. Um, and, and buyers were excited to buy for Christmas time and, and, and they're just excited. It helps them feel good too, right? So there's a feel good mm-hmm. element. So a lot of people ended up doing a lot better uh, during that period of time than I think that what they had planned or hoped or thought. Worse than what they would have planned when they made the plans maybe in 2022, um, or, or sorry, in 2021, but better than what they were seeing going into Q4. Um, mm-hmm. Now in 2023, I'm, I'm going to say that I, I, there's, a really good, um, there's a really good email that I like to get called Before the Opening Bell by Phil Rosen with Business Insider. It's every morning. And it's okay. just macroeconomic stuff, you know, what's going on with the, the stock market as a whole, with buyer sentiment, housing market, et cetera. Um, and, and I read this every morning and I would say, you know, general sentiment, if I was going to sum it up, is that we're likely going to go into more of a recession this year. Uh, interest rates or inflation hasn't cooled off the way that we would like it. Fed's going to continue to tighten a little bit more. Um, this is not financial advice. I'm not a CPA, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, you know, there's that idea that uh, be prepared for 2023 to likely be potentially rough. We're seeing more layoffs. Google just laid a bunch of people off and that's all over the news, right? Like this was just last night in, in like, yeah. you know, a, a big deal. Um, you know, Adweek laid people off. Uh, you know, I've been seeing, you know, everybody, everybody in the space is buying Netflix apart from Apple thus far. Yeah. And so, and so I think that one of the things you have to remember is like, you know, those people maybe can sometimes be going off of severances, um, but we're, we're at the point where there's a point where consumer spending, um, you know, it, it may start to be a little bit more impacted than what we've seen so far. And so if we get into 2023 and people maybe don't have the income they thought, they maybe max out, they spent the severance, they spent their, their uh, you know, their credit cards are, are run up a little bit. Um, there's a very good chance that, uh, that some of that will go down. But not everybody. And so we have some customers right now that are up very well year over year, and we have some that are not up right now. And I think that you have to look at your broad economy and what's happening there. And so one example is uh, a customer, and I don't want to use their category to say it, but when we look at their category on Google Trends, um, their category is down like 55% year over year. So for people looking to get into their space, it's just, it's not there. And so they're likely going to need to say, hey, if you get any growth, you're outpacing that 50 you know, percent drop. Um, and so that's a good thing, if that makes sense for them to, to just not, not outpace that drop. And, and, and how do you think like advertisers that, that, um, are facing headwinds from a macro trend perspective can still utilize customer data, like just harvest. Is, is there like a customer data harvest opportunity here where you, you fine tune a lot of your performance ads, just thinking 18 months down the line, let me just try and, you know, acquire as many emails, as many mobile cell phone numbers as possible, um, create relationships, you know, do a bit of content marketing to, to just build this relationship. So when the economy, t- you know, changes, you know, tide, they're there. 
is 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 that is that happening is is that even a thing or um do you just look at your your daily battles and and essentially firefight i i love that you brought up the relationship because i like to think about it that way relationships with humans i think is how we we more intuitively understand things um, and let's just say capturing the email address or the phone number is a lot like just capturing an email, uh, a phone number of a girl at a bar or something. It's like, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's significant intent or anything like that. Like you've, you've captured a way to get in touch with this person, but you haven't captured their heart necessarily. And so I like mm-hmm. to take this a little bit maybe beyond and I'd say, how do you capture your customer's heart? And you don't have to do that by necessarily capturing their email address or whatever. You just have to capture that by, let's say, some, some content that actually reaches into what they are and what they're thinking about more so than, than just product focused ads. And if you think about um, most brands, and I'm sure that you see this in, in, in a lot of the audits that you do as well, the very first ad that somebody runs, every DCC run, uh, runs after you make a purchase is another ad to buy something else. There's mm-hmm. no relationship building there. For the majority mm-hmm. of people, you're just going to get another you know, ad to buy again to increase the LTV and whatever. Uh, there's, a, there's a lack of investing in the human that was on the other side of that transaction and, and what are they connecting with and why and where and how. And so I think, you know, for lack of a better idea, let's say we, we were talking earlier today about um, liquid death. And you had, you had the cans and everything you showed me here too, right? And so they're, they're one, of, one of the brands that I really appreciate because um, it, it's essentially just canned water. There's not really anything significantly different. <laughs> there we go. Uh, there's not anything significantly different, but they've done a great job of really investing in like customers absolutely love their brand because they've differentiated and they've reached them on a more emotional level. And so I think that there's still a lot of ways if, if I was a brand that wants to struggle, you know, or that's struggling or whatever right now, it wants to reach people. I would say, focus on that relationship. How can you get those people to say, I love this brand. And even if things are a little tight, I want to support this brand. Yeah. You also spoke about the proliferation of, um, UGC. And, and how, you know, every UGC seems to look alike. Um, yeah. So do you think now's the time to, for, for people, to, for, 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 for brand owners, for operators to really step back and de- device a, a brand strategy that is empathetic to all that is going on, um, both at a macroeconomic level and from a competitive level, you know, just differentiating themselves. If you think that is the way, how would that play out? in performance, how that translates in, in, in execution from a performance standpoint? Yeah. Um, so, you know, for instance, liquid death, uh, if you go with them for a moment, because they've done a great job of really hitting the emotional side of their customers. Um, you could put a 10 year old on that ad account and and it's going to do fantastic. Like there's, it doesn't matter what agency you use for them. They're going to do really well. Um, on the flip side, then, if you're an account that, uh, let's say, a, a, or a e-commerce store that hasn't done any UGC, just start doing UGC at least a little bit. Even though it all looks the same, you're likely going to see an improvement in performance for your brand because that is still just, let's say, best practice for what it is and likely better than what you're doing today. But if you want to stand out and you need to stand out, and that is a critical thing for what's going on right now when you're looking at saying the, the, the overall amount of buying potential has dropped. And so you need to cut through that noise. Um, the way that you're going to do that is through what you're saying and how you're saying it. It is not necessarily because you're doing UGC or not doing UGC, but are you saying something that's significantly different? Canned water, there's a lot of water companies out there. The canned water, though, with liquid death, significantly different and is reaching people on a very different emotional level. And that is what I think most 
companies are missing because for the last few years, it was easy to grow and build and sell products online. It's not anymore. It's, well, it's, it's different. And so you actually have to differentiate yourself. And that's not going to happen by just saying, you know, throwing out a hundred different creatives that all sound about the exact same. This comes from intentional, thoughtful um, brand, brand positioning. Which reminds me of TV advertising again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, yeah, emotive stuff that, that really cuts across, you know, um, cuts through the noise, really. Interesting stuff. Really, really interesting. So in accounts, what do you think is the split now between like the, the actual media buying, the programmatic bit of it, or just setup of, of the account? And, um, creatives, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of proponents say creatives, the holy grail of performance marketing today. Do you, do you agree? And this is where I would, I would say no, but I, I want to differentiate that and say, um, the sheer number of creatives and things like that, that you see the majority of people pumping out there is no, like it, none of it actually ends up performing any better it'll perform a little bit better for a day or an hour or a minute or whatever. Right. Like it's like, you don't even know if that was just, you know, coincidental. And, and so it's, it's up and down and up and down and up and down. And like the net growth from it is that none of it really mattered uh, in the grand scheme of it. And I wrote a good article about this too, um, where I talk about base theorem, um, which is a really great statistics principle and about how the majority of the ads that you actually think are performing actually aren't even, you know, statistically performing. And so if people want to read it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, but for sure. Um, but a, a highly differentiated creative. Yes, absolutely. And again, going with liquid death, where, where something is significantly different than what else is being set out there in the market for your particular product, that makes a massive difference. And so we had a, a client and, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something where the, the cost for them to acquire a purchase was about $12 fought with them uh, forever because they had just really strict brand guidelines to, to finally say, can we please just make a new ad for you that we think is going to meet best practices in a massively different way? Um, got the approval, same campaign, same ad set, same everything, right? So just a different ad within all of that. Um, and, and the cost required customer on that ad was $1.43 overnight. Massive no. difference. So the right, the right creative can make a massive difference. But do I think that's what's plaguing the majority of ad accounts today? Uh, no. And, and I say this because uh, probably 90% of the accounts that we bring on we might not launch a single new creative when we initially take over, and that's on purpose, um, to show the difference between just setting the accounts up correctly from a mathematical scientific understanding of how algorithms and science and math work. Um, we, we see double the performance immediately just from that alone. And so I think that the majority of people can see immediate performance improvements by just setting things up correctly. That said, Every brand can likely benefit significantly from a brand position improvement, not necessarily more creative, if that makes sense. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. You need to put your house in order. And obviously the the furniture, the designer furniture is the designer furniture. However, we in, in that metaphor, I didn't really explain sure. it well in that metaphor, but 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 you get my point. So what are the mistakes, the top issues you guys find your team find when they they take up or inherit an account what are the top 
silly issues that cause performance issues on, you know, in, in particularly in Facebook and meta accounts, and maybe we'll talk about Google a bit later, but, but in, in meta accounts in meta advertising accounts, what do people sure. do terribly? One of the things that I see, and I want to be careful to say that while I believe that these are the absolute correct ways to do it, that doesn't mean that you can't find good success doing it completely differently. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that is because um, as soon as we do something, that opens up the opportunity for something else to be effective, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Because now mm-hmm. you have two different people approaching it from two different ways. If we all do it the mm-hmm. exact same way, if we all do it the way that I suggest, then it won't be effective anymore either. But yeah. from an algorithmic understanding, one of the things that I see that is um, a big issue uh, is uh, there's still a really big lack of excluding um, existing customers from what people would call prospecting campaigns. Um, and mm-hmm. so you'll, pe- you'll see people maybe excluding um, uh, based on pixel purchases or something like that. Uh, I'm amazed at the amount of people that aren't excluding email addresses or they do, but it hasn't up- they haven't updated the email address list in yeah. you know, five months or something. And so this is one of the most important things that you can do. If you're actually trying to go after net new people, um, make sure that what you're saying you're doing and what you think you're doing is actually doing it. And so Clavio is really the easiest one to automatically, uh, you know, uh, exclude those automatically because the, the email addresses refresh uh, continually. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're going to get the match rate of those email addresses plus that. But then we also like taking this further and we like to exclude people that have interacted with your page, engaged with your, you know, Instagram account, et cetera. We are saying, I want net new people completely new to the brand. Let's go after those people um, and I think that that allows a significant greater reach in what we're trying to do towards net new people instead of continuing to show it to the same people that algorithmically seem like they should be the right ones, but they're not doing what you mm-hmm. expect them to do. And so we're saying, saying tell Facebook, go after somebody new, I'm done with that, mm-hmm. like keep moving on to find who's actually ready to purchase. So that's one of the biggest ones. So those um, exclusions are really important top of funnel. Okay. Big time. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, and proper exclusions in bottom and middle of funnel as well. Um, but I, I would say, uh, one of the other really big ones that I would see then is, um, a lot of, a lot of, and this is going to go into Google though, too, if that's okay. A lot of people that are focused so much on, um, the immediate return on ad spend on something that might be really incremental, like brand search, or I'm sorry, on non-brand search or, or even in Pmax, um, that they, they fail to understand how that is contributing towards a lot of other things. And so you're driving qualified traffic that then you're retargeting now on Facebook or something like that. Right. Uh, And so making sure that you understand that even if that non-brand search is at a one X return on ad spend in platform, is it actually incremental? And one of the best ways to tell is run the, run a holdout study, run a geographic holdout study and actually find out if it's generating that. And usually you will find that it is generating a lot more return than what it's being credited for. Because it is higher up the funnel than what a lot of other stuff within Google would what's, be. What's what's a geographic hold up? So if if, yeah. I, if I pick, yeah. One of our favorite methods, and, and there's a really good article that we have on our blog about this too, which is called uh, the the I think it's just called the the death the ROAS death spiral. Um, okay. And uh, if if you are going to say run an ad, let's say the non brand search, run that in five states. And don't run it into the other 45 states or something, right? And it's good to import. You still have to pick the right states, but let's just make it simple for now. Um, okay. At the end of a test period, 
you should be able to see that there's a difference in the amount of actual revenue in Shopify from those five states. If everything else stayed the same, how much is that difference? And if that difference is significant enough, then you might actually have a 5x MER return, from, but maybe the platform is only taking 1x credit. So, but now you can at least understand that it's actually driving a lot more real tangible value than what it's being credited for. Okay. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. And then what's your take on, just speaking to Google AdWords, what's your take on, on brand name search? Should, should brands chase brand name search? Is there an advantage for, for brand name search? Particularly if you're in a space where your competitors are not essentially feeding off the back of your, or cannibalizing your, your brand name search. Yeah. So, um, you, you need to do some element of it. And then this is where it's, it's a very nuanced uh, discovery to find out how much should you as a particular brand do this. But here's a few ways to look at it. One would be, mm-hmm. you mentioned whether or not your competitors are getting it, uh, going after your keyword terms. And I think mm-hmm. the important thing is to know that they are. Whether they know it or not, they might not intentionally be doing it anymore, but that is a part of how Google works because it's not exact match anymore for anything. And so if Google still thinks that this is related they're running a PMAX campaign and a lot of other things that, that, that your competitor is doing, Google still might say, oh, this is close enough and they might actually be looking for this too. So there, there's an element of that, that they are going after your, your brand terms, whether they mean to or not. Um, but beyond that, uh, impression share is a really good thing to look at. Well, if you've got 99% impression share on you know $1,000 a month in spend on brand search, is it incremental for you to go after that extra 1% you likely are going to have to spend $10,000 instead of $1,000 to get that extra 1% of impression share. It might not be worth it. That's one way to look at it. Another way is making sure you bring a Google search console. You can connect to it to find out, well, how much of that are you already capturing from an organic perspective? What is the overall overlap that you're getting there? Or are you just cannibalizing your own? And you will a little bit, but the goal is to see if the net increase is worth it. And so let's say that you're going to get 100 conversions organically. And let's say that you add on, um, you know, some ad spend for brand. And let's say that you capture 50 uh, um, of those through the brand paid search and 75 now organic. Let's say you cannibalize 25. Uh, it's still a net increase of 25, though. So you're still getting 25 more purchases than you were because you're now at 125, 50 plus 75 versus 100. So, yes, you cannibalized some, but you still got a net increase. Um the other thing that's beneficial here is you can do things that you can't do organically for your brand. So there's different site links and things like that, that you can use. You could test out different offers, different ideas. There's more that you can do on the brand side to still test and see, can you incrementally increase what would normally happen organically? Mm-hmm. Very, very, very good point. Going back to, to Meta, to the Facebook advertising platform, there's been a lot of talk on account simplicity, both from um, Facebook account managers and just the general performance marketing community. What's your take on account simplicity? If you're all for account simplicity, what's, what's, what's a good account structure from your point of view? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm all for account simplicity. Um, but I would say that we're maybe like on the middle road of what it's not all one campaign. Um, I think that there's some people that take that too far and, and then you're, you're, again, you're missing out on being able to use what you do have available for how to influence it. And, and one example of this would be, let's say that I know that there's a particular um, demographic for our company that does better. Let's say 20 year olds, um, maybe they don't buy as high on their first purchase, but they're over their 90 day LTV is five times higher than a 60 year old. Well, 
Facebook might say, well, I'm going to go after this, you know, 60 year old because maybe they're buying easier or whatever. And so they're buying more on that first purchase and the return on that spend is higher. But I'm saying, yeah, but I understand what's more beneficial to the long-term success of this company. So I'm going to try to go after this. So there's, there's reasons to why you want to still use what's in your control to understand what Facebook doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, what the algorithm just doesn't have access to. Agree. Um, yeah. Although they should have access to it. And I think they're, 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 they will before long more and more. Um, but the overall account structure that we're looking at is um, prospecting for net new customers, uh, retargeting for net new customers. Re, um, and then let's say uh, prospecting, if you would, for returning customers and retargeting for returning customers. That's the, if, if you're going to go like the most dialed back symbolized, there's a lot more that we do for bigger brands, but if you're just going simple, and the reason why I like those four is um, I want one campaign that's intentionally going after net new people. And when they come back to the website, I want to retarget them differently. And so this is where those, those exclusions are important, um, even on the retargeting side, because I'm willing to pay more for that net new customer. I want them to be our customer because I know that if I can get them in here, it's worth it to me. Versus retargeting for existing customers They've already purchased maybe once, twice, three times. If I continue to repay for them at that same rate every single time they come back by just lumping them in, retargeting with everybody else, uh, I'm, I'm likely not making profit off of any one of those customers over a long period of time now. Um, but then also having a prospecting for uh, existing customers, and you know, calling it a prospecting if you would, but intentionally going after people who are existing customers who maybe haven't purchased in the last month, two months, three months, whatever that number is, saying, I want to get them back to the site. Email open rates are what, 35%. Maybe if you're doing a really great job, 50%, like you're just crushing it. Um, there's still a lot of people that you're not reaching, but you can reach them through other campaigns and, and other means to make sure that they're at least remembering your brand, seeing your brand. Oh yeah, that's right. I want to come back and get that again. That's right. That's right. And then what, what does the, the bottom of funnel look like? Do, do, you, um, do you advocate for, 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 for dy- dynamic product ads? Um, and what's also your take on um, automation? So CBO, which is the campaign budget um, opt- optimization, I think. CBO. Um, yep. And what do you think about um, you know, dynamic, dy- dynamic ads? Um, do you trust the algorithm? Do you just you know, live creates, do, 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 is it still manual from your perspective? Um, or do you really trust the algorithm to, to figure and test? Yeah. So there's a lot that we do keep as CBO. Uh, I love CBO for the most part. Um, and within there, we're usually looking at three main audiences an interest-based, a lookalike based and a broad audience based. And so within those, it's like making sure that it has the opportunity to test within whatever one happens to be hitting well. And so, you know, you'll see things on Twitter where people are saying, you know, like, Hey, this, 10% double stack McDonald's lookalike whatever thing is working really hot right now. And it's like, well, the reality is it can go back and forth with these different fluctuations between interest working or, or lookalike working or broad working. And if you have all three of those within there and you're excluding them in the right ways to make sure that you're, you're not as overlapped as you'd want to be, it, it's going to do a great job within uh, determining that. Um, uh, that being said, uh, we, we don't take it at face value. So a lot of what we're looking at though still is understanding if what it's doing is supposed to be doing it the way that it needs to be doing it, like looking at, let's say, um, Google Analytics, looking at the paths report within Google Analytics to find out, are there significant discrepancies? And if so, let's make sure that we're testing that separately. So we also run testing campaigns separately in smaller amounts to see like, what, what can we gain from this? What can we learn from this without having to ruin what's already performing very well? 
Um, and you can think about that as having a really big optimized machine and you just throw something new at it. It's, it's, it's not the ideal situation uh, versus mm-hmm. having something that's working really well. Um, and we go into this a little bit more in that article there about uh, not based there this time, but Simpsons Paradox um, okay. on, the, on the website, which is a really good one that helps to understand that what you think might be performing really well in platform uh, when you look at Google Analytics might be the complete opposite. Now, what you have to understand about Simpsons Paradox is, is uh, without going too deep into it, um, roughly half of the ads that you're running, likely even th- that, that Facebook is identified as performant, likely are not actually performant. Um, and, and this is where the paradox comes in. Um, and so if you look uh, at Google Analytics and you see that there's a significant discrepancy, run it as a test to see, can I, ver- can I validate that this discrepancy? And if you do validate the discrepancy, take some manual control. And so we, we believe that there's a, a blend of let the algorithm do what it's supposed to do. Don't get in the way of the algorithm. It's massively smart and complex, but it's not perfect. And the reason we know it's not perfect is we've all had uh, those moments where your product gets flagged and, you know, for like adult content and it's a children's teddy bear. And you're like, this is, yeah. you know, obviously the algorithm is not completely uh, supernaturally intelligent yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Makes Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. So finally, just to wrap up, being very cognizant of your time, I want to be respectful of your time. Would you mind running us through a, um, an M&A, you know, we love M&A in this show, an M&A case study in which a client you know, comes to you and says, can elements help us with um, optimizing our, our EBITDA or our, our net profit? Because if this balloons, we have we have a better multiple to exit, and this is our plan. We give you X amount of months, and um, you know, go 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 to the races. Yeah, I, and I think it's interesting to say that people don't usually come to us saying, "Hey, we want you to help us uh, optimize for acquisition." That's something that we mm-hmm. oftentimes end up more bringing up with them, and so they'll come to us, and we're trying to pull out, well, "Do you what? Is, what is your goal here? What do you actually want to do?" Right, and in through that, they were like, "Well, yeah, ultimately, we're trying to get you know acquired, but." A lot of times the marketing team doesn't know that. Um, and so it's mm-hmm. like getting the right people on the call and saying like, what is your ultimate goal for this business? Um, and then we can say, okay, well, here's Move how we that. can approach growth. We can look at it this way, or we can look at it this way. Um, and, and from a case study, there's, you know, these are, I don't think any of them are, are officially publicly uh, mentioned from acquisitions. So I, I have to be careful about talking about numbers. Okay. Um, but there's a, a uh, uh, one in particular that was acquired uh, they have a massive YouTube channel. And so one of the ways that we helped them uh, increase their multiple that they were able to get on that EBITDA was helping to put, well, what is the value of this YouTube channel? And, and don't quote me on the exact numbers, because uh, this was a couple of years ago. Um, let's say 2 million monthly views or something like that, right? Or, 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 some, or I think like 2 million subscribers. Um, and they're getting significant amounts of organic views. Well, there's the EBITDA, but then there's, what is the value of actually just building up a YouTube channel to that in and of itself? There are many other ways that that could be capitalized, many other things you could do. It, it, let's say you just build up a YouTube channel and you didn't have an e-commerce store to go along with it. There's value in and of itself of just those eyeballs, et cetera. So how do we make sure that we understand that? And so by understanding what that was and starting to assign numbers and values and how we can appropriate, uh, appropriately um, uh, you know, quantify how valuable that is in and of itself, then that company was able to uh, reach a better overall purchase price because they were able to increase the multiple. And so, you know, let's say the multiple was going to be six, they were able, maybe able to acquire 
get acquired for a 6.5 or, or whatever that number was um, on that EBITDA simply because we helped them to understand the value of some of the other things they were doing. Right. Okay. So it's a real asset um, audit, and uh, and then you, you you extracted the value off the back of um, you know the the assets they had. Amazing. Yep. Amazing. All right. So before I let you go, William, um, we have we we always end with a lightning round. Um, I'd ask you six to seven questions, and if you could use a single que- sentence essentially to answer each of them, we'll be a okay. I, I will do my best. Uh, those who know me know that um, pleonasm is my friend. I am not very good at being <laughs> succinct, but I will. I will give it my best shot. That's good. Let's try. Let's try. Are you a morning person? I am. Uh, I love I mornings. I try to wake up, get my workout in, and do my devotions. You, be, you, you beat me to it. So I was going to ask what's your daily morning routine. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, typically, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays is when I work out. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I like to wake, wake up, work out, but I like to do my devotions. And then uh, the rest of my, my morning tends to be getting the, my girls ready for school, um, you know, making breakfast, getting them ready and watching them out, out, off to the bus and then uh, log in. And then I, I actually still, so we use Asana. Uh, I'm already past the one sentence. We use Asana for everything internally, but I still have my paperback that I write. Like one of the most important things that I absolutely need to focus on and get done today. I write that down here in like a, a paper journal. Amazing. Okay. Good. Journaling is always very important. Are you into sports, whether as spectator or, you know, active sports or whether you're active into sports? Love playing sports, not as big of a spectator, partly because I don't have time anymore to watch that mm-hmm. as much as I used to. Um, but basketball was my main sport, but I did basketball, baseball, I did uh, taekwondo. Um, love playing just about every sport possible. Love playing rec league, things like that. Um, played in high school, uh, did a 360 dunk in a game in my senior year. That's probably a highlight of my career. Um, but uh, How tall are you? Six foot. Well, not anymore. I'm probably like 5'11 foot- now. Yeah, you, you did. You did a three sixty. Wow, wow. Okay, kudos to you. All right, Thanks, we man. we should we should do a one on one whenever we see. What two things it. can't you live? <laughs> yeah, what two things can't you live without? Oh, you know what? Um, one one thing for sure is I'm going to say it's my phone. Um, I'm terribly ADHD, and uh, I can remember the first time I got a BlackBerry. I think it was the BlackBerry eighty eight seventy. And I finally was able to start showing up to appointments on time when I was young, right? I was like, you know, 20 years old or something. Um, so without having that in my calendar and whatever right there, um, I'm, I'm, you know, would be lost. Um, other thing that I can't live without, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things that I really appreciate and, and enjoy doing. I'm going to say the stove because we cook a lot. I like to make uh, gourmet right. food and have fun with that. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's a very good pastime. What book are you currently reading? or listening to? Um, so the book that I started reading is called, uh, I got to remember the name of the title, um, a swim in the a swim in a pond in the rain. Um, and it's a really interesting book from a Syracuse professor uh, on like a, uh, a section of four different Russian, Russian literature, short stories, and, and just different ways that he's approaching the short story. Um, actually uh, a friend of mine, contractor, uh, Zach Stafford on our team actually sent it to me. I had never even thought about reading it and I've really enjoyed it because when you think about breaking down short stories and the different elements that drive that story along, I think it's very practical even from an advertising perspective too. Mm-hmm. Check it out for sure. We'll link to it in the show notes. Right. Finally, what's been your best mistake to date? By that, I mean a setback that's given you the biggest feedback. 
Oh man, best mistake. Make lots of mistakes. Got to figure out which one the best one is. Um, I I would say the the thing that I did early on in starting Element that I've learned a lot from. Going back to the basketball metaphor, I would sometimes bang my head against the wall, frustrated that maybe sometimes some people on my team who are just wildly good at the the analytical side of advertising just couldn't be creative enough for whatever I needed for that client. And, and then other ones that were just incredibly creative just couldn't be analytical enough for the, what I was looking for and started to realize that it was, I, I'm trying to maybe put my five foot guard in as the post player in basketball and asking them to get the mm-hmm. rebound. And that's a bad coaching move. And so I'd say the biggest mistake I made was putting sometimes the wrong people in the wrong positions and realizing that, wait a minute, I need to step back, see the court, and I will do a much better job of putting people in the right spots, they will feel more empowered and better about what they're doing and they will be more effective in it. Oh, that's a really deep insight, William. And that is a wrap. William Harris, thank you for coming on the 2X e-commerce podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure learning about Element and just learning about your journey, your your your, your deep, your, your, your backstory really touched me. Thanks, Cooley. It's been really great to be here with you. All right, cheers. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of 2X e-commerce. We encourage you to connect with our community of 2X e-commerce listeners on our Facebook group, e-commerce growth accelerator mastermind. Just search for 2X e-commerce on Facebook to find it. Answer three questions and you'll be approved. Grab the show notes of this episode on our website, 2xecommerce.com. Finally, if you haven't already, give the show a review on your podcasting app. Catch you on the next show and keep growing.